right, welcome to another episode of The Long Drive Home in the Dark. I'm your host, Pat, my co-host, Truck. And today we are going to talk a little bit about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you've got an older Bible, this might be Esdras 1 and 2. Um, they got effectively renamed Ezra and Nehemiah. Their books that, you know, like most uh, Old Testament books, that time frame, they were put down pen to paper, at least in the form we have them now, sometime in the 500 BC time frame, Second Temple Judaism. And that makes uh, a lot of sense for these books, since these are post-exilic, so after the Babylonian exile, books about the Jews coming back to uh, Jerusalem and to Judea and reestablishing the temple and rebuilding Jerusalem. And so this is kind of the, the I don't call it, they're, it's, it's weird, they're very important books from a historical perspective in the, the Jewish narrative because the way the overarching Jewish narrative runs is you have you know the beginning of the set of covenants between God and his people with Abraham right there are covenants that God forms with people before that you have the covenant with um, Noah you've got the covenant with Adam uh, the covenant with Cain um, which you know a lot of people look at that and just see it as a curse there's it's there's more to it than just just the curses and, and, and with Adam too um, you know the cursing of the earth and the, the cursing that falls upon Adam and that falls upon Eve are not just curses there's also a there's also promises in there made by God and that's the formation of a covenant we have the the covenant people really formulate under Abraham. Abraham's the start of the, you know, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, uh, which they're called in the, by the time we reach Exodus. And so you have the story of Abraham and then his sons, um, and that that is in Genesis, and that culminates in the story of Joseph and the moving of the Hebrew people at that time, the, you know, basically the establishment, the beginning of the 12 tribes under the 12 sons of Israel and you know sort of the the nomenclature Israel right it's called Israel um, he who struggles with God you know that's that's what Israel means and the 12 tribes move to Egypt and they multiply and and that's where you enter Exodus and Exodus basically says they multiplied greatly to such a point the Egyptians became afraid of them and put them to hard labor and turned them into slaves, effectively. Uh, and then the story of Exodus is their triumphant leaving of Egypt, you know, by the gracious and glorious hand of God, you know, effectively forcing the Egypts to let them go, or the Egyptians to let them go. And then their uh, traversing in the desert, the covenant that's formed with God, you know, from the mountain, you know, his his glory, the cloud of his glory comes down upon the mountain. And that's a common theme. God's cloud, the cloud of God's glory, 
or the presence of God is often talked about as a cloud or a mist or, or something in that form, depending on how you want to formulate it. And that's important. Like anytime that shows up, it shows God's presence. Um, and it's important in both the Old Testament and the New Testament because it happens in the New Testament too. We see it in at the very, you know, most obvious places, the baptism of Jesus Christ and uh, by John the Baptist, and then the transfiguration on the mountain. You know, God God's glory shows up in the cloud twice, and He speaks. Well, there, there's a in Exodus. There's a scene where you know Moses has them set up altars at the mountain. I want to say Mount Sinai, um, and he you know they kill bulls and rams and whatnot. They sprinkle the blood on the people and and consecrate them, and then God speaks. And basically forms the, his covenant with them and as his people. He basically declares them holy and sacred, and, and they're his people from now, from now on. They're the people where he makes his dwelling with. And so that's the covenant. The, effectively, the what we call the Mosaic covenant. That's where it begins. And you know, you have the Abrahamic covenant. The you know you're, I'll I'll give this land the promised land to your people, and, to your, and they'll become as as you know as numerous as the stars. That that all that promise is sort of the the first covenant with the people. But the Mosaic covenant gets formed Moses in the desert after they leave. Um, shoot, <laughs> after they, after they leave Egypt. So, and then from there on, from the books of the Bible, we see, you know, the, eventually the, stat, the, the people coming into the promised land, um, their trials and tribulations, both in the desert and then when they come into the promised land, the mistakes they make, the times they rely on God, things go well, the times they don't, things do not go well. We see the judges, and the book of Judges basically takes us through the, the de-evolution of Israel from God's people into just people of the land, right? And that is that is sort of code word in the Old Testament for people who worship, uh, you know, pagan gods, or, or you know, it's it's similar to let me say the modern day version of the word heathen, um, because that in the in when that word first started getting used, it was people of the heath, and that meant you know people who hadn't been um, taught effectively they didn't have their letters they didn't you know and they didn't know about Jesus Christ which was an important portion of education well you have the the Hebrew people their code word for a similar sort of people would be the people of the land um, especially the Canaanites and, and effectively what you see in the book of Judges is the de-evolution of the the Hebrews the Israelite people from being God's people to being heathens or being people of the land like they're sacrificing humans again and they're making um, making themselves priests when they feel like it and making up their own rituals and they're <laughs> creating household gods and worshiping them it's all terrible terrible stuff judges effectively ends with a story um, that's a repeat of a story in uh, Genesis it's a repeat of the Sodom and Gomorrah story it's, it's, you know, this is how far the Jewish or the Hebrew people have fallen. 
And so then you pick up with the king, the establishment of the kingdom. You have Saul and David and Solomon with the combined kingdom. And then you have the tearing of the kingdom in two, which is by God's providence. However, the northern king decides in his arrogance that he is going to forestall worship in Jerusalem, which is where God established his temple, where in he, you know, in the course of those books, kings and chronicles and whatnot, God's presence comes upon the temple and he makes his residence there. You see, the northern kingdom eventually falls into ruin, destroyed by the Assyrians, and the people are... The, the Assyrian policy in that time frame when they were taking over the world, when they were the, the superpower of the Near East, was to resettle people they had conquered. And so they would take large groups of people, especially nobility, upper crust, and move them to other places in the empire. Uh, and so that's why you have the, the whole concept of the lost tribes of Israel. So, and if you look at it, like from a map standpoint, the partitioning of the land after the conquering of the Holy Land from the Canaanites, the land was partitioned out to the 12 tribes of Israel. The 10 of the tribes were in what was called the Northern Kingdom, so what eventually just became referred to as Israel, and then you had uh, Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes in the south, and that area became known as Judea because it was mostly Judah. Benjamin was a very small tribe, a very small number of people. Interestingly enough, that's where David comes from. He's a Benjamite. Benjaminite. Or is it Judah? I gotta look at it. <laughs> Either way, that's where David comes out of. Um, but the... So the Assyrians kind of cart off the ten northern tribes and, and, and bring other people in, right? So they don't just take the folks away from an area they conquer. They also bring other peoples that they've conquered into that area. And this results in what you have, the problems you have down the, down the line with the creation of the groups known as the Sumerians. You have Galilee. You have all these sort of really questionable what's their relation to the Hebrews, to Judaism, you know, a lot of them are God-fearers. They do worship God, but they don't worship him in the same way. They have sort of the the old practices of going up to the mountains or the high places or the Asherahs. Or the, and some of them worship the Baals, which is just code word for, you know, worshiping their own household gods or the gods of the Canaanites. So lots of friction with them. And then eventually, you know, the people of Judea and the, the rulers in Judah screw up hard enough that the, the Babylonians come and take over. So the Babylonians come to uh, dominance after the Assyrians. They, they defeat the Assyrians with the help, I believe with the help of the Persians, the Medes, at that time. And the Babylon becomes the main, you know, dominant superpower. Um, and the Babylonians have a similar policy to the Assyrians. They, they, when they conquer somewhere, they move a lot of the people. And that's exactly what they do when they conquer Jerusalem. They move it, they move most of the people into other territories in Babylon. They don't even resettle it, they just sort of leave the people there. Um, and the story of what happens in there is really, is really covered in, in the course of two prophets, two of the major Old Testament prophets. And it's interesting the way the Bible is set up because these events are told in, in the book of Kings and the book of... Uh, Chronicles, no, I don't actually know if it's told in Chronicles or not, but it's told in Kings. No, it's told in Chronicles. And it's sort of just 
it's just the end of the history, right? So that's where the, the history of the kingdom ends. That's where the history of the, the Chronicles, which is just the Chronicles of the Kings of uh, Judah, end. Well, um, but you don't get a lot of like the details of what was going on. The two prophets you want to read to get the details are the prophet Jeremiah, and he goes in because he was in, in Jerusalem during the siege, or sieges, um, the Babylonian siege. And he was God's prophet. He was God's voice during that uh, event. And um, he ends up getting carted off to Egypt afterwards, even though he didn't want to go to Egypt. They forced him to go, and it turns badly for the people that forced him to go. Um, but his... So if you read Jeremiah, you kind of get a view into what is going on in Jerusalem during the siege and then what happens after uh, the siege. And if you want to get a, a, a view for what's going on for the people in exile already, you read Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel's book, so Ezekiel is from, he's a prophet of God, but he's taken from the northern tribes. Well, by this time... Remember, we said the Assyrians had already scattered the northern tribes. So Ezekiel is not in, you know, Israel. He's he's scattered. Um, he's in somewhere in what what used to be the larger Assyrian Empire, which has now become the Babylonian Empire. And he basically gets a vision of God leaving the temple, right? And this is the the kind of prelude, the spiritual prelude to what is going on in Jerusalem, in the material realm, right? So God leaves the temple. The covenant is broken, right? The covenant's over. God's no longer with this people, like his people. He has left them. He's left the temple. He's no longer inhabited. Jerusalem's no longer his city, right? He, he's, God's going, and he's gone. And that is the big, big, big lesson or, or thing you need to take away from the book of Ezekiel, if you're going to look at Ezekiel in light of the rest of the Bible, which is what you should always do when you read any book of the Bible. You should never read it as if it's a standalone work. That's the reason it's assembled in one giant book. Even though it's a library, it's a library that's hyperlinked, <laughs> that's, or that's heavily interconnected. Um, you know, we, we have similar stories, you know, here. It's like the if you want to look at the movie versions, like the cinematic universes, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or Star Wars, all the Star Wars movies, all that stuff is just is interconnected, right? Some stories matter more to the main plot than others, quote-unquote, but every story is important in its own right. That's sort of the Bible. Um, it's not just sort of, that is, that is how the Bible operates. So you never want to read just a book of the Bible as if it's just its own thing. It's interconnected with everything else, but it also is its own thing. Uh, something to keep in mind, you know, about writing styles, about when it was written, about who it was written by, who it was written for, um, <clears throat> what's the what's the context of the writing, and and what's the style? Like, is it a is it supposed to be ancient history? Is it ancient biography? Is it you know what is it? Um, and so, you know, when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are written after the event, one of the major events in the history of the, the Near East, which is the uh, Persian Empire coming to power. So uh, Cyrus, he's, so the Persian Empire, or the Medes, come to power after the Babylonians, right? They get together with uh, some other group, I don't remember, and they take down Babylon, and, and after that they become the dominant empire in Cyrus. Cyrus takes a very different 
um, approach to rulership over the Near East than almost all of the predecessor empires. So what we have in the predecessor empires is very much a, I conquer this area and I do, do whatever I want with it. And that included at least these two things. Number one, I take the people and I resettle them elsewhere um, in my empire. And number two, I take the gods of their city and bring them back. So in the case of the Babylonians, when they conquered Jerusalem, they took, <clears throat> obviously you can't take God, right? So you took everything, they took everything else. They took, they didn't take the Ark of the Covenant, as far as we can tell. That got hidden. Like you read Jeremiah and it becomes somewhat clear that the Ark of the Covenant was hidden. Um, and there's a couple different theories about what that happened, slash, um, oh, what do you call it? Um, when I say theory, there's another word, legends, and they're pious legends, right? You know, it's hidden up in a, a cave in a mountain somewhere, or it was smuggled out. There's the, the pious legend that it's in Ethiopia, um, although most most uh, historians don't truck with that one. Um, but that's, that's the one that gets you to maybe it still exists today, and we know where it is. So that's the most glamorous one. So you'll see that one trotted out, um, <clears throat> you know, in History Channel type stuff. Discovery Channel. <coughs> so what we have, pious legends, maybe it was taken up to heaven, because John sees it in the book of Revelation, although honestly, eh, John's probably not talking about that Ark of the Covenant, he's probably referring to Mary as the Ark of the Covenant, um, since she was, she did carry the new covenant, which was Jesus Christ. But either way, um, Cyrus takes over, and... Um, but it's the Babylonians that cart off, you know, the, the, all of the utensils, the altar stuff, all, you know, basically anything they could carry that was involved in the worship of the, you know, of the Israelite God, the Hebrew God. And that was, that was standard, like you'd go into a city and you'd find the city's God, whatever it was, or their gods, and there were statues, right? And so you'd pick them up and cart them off and kind of a, hey, we're in charge now, we have your gods kind of a deal. And it was sort of a ransom thing. It was sort of a, you know, we own you now sort of a thing. Um, and Cyrus took a very different sort of position on that one. He let people go back. Um, he let people go back to where they were from. He let them resettle their areas. And he took sort of a steward position over the lordship um, of, you know, or the, or the high priest of the gods of the various cities in his empire. We can see this when his son, I want to say his son is Artaxerxes uh, I, his son manages to conquer Egypt. Like That's one of the things Cyrus, uh, as the king of kings, you know, one of the great um, ancient kings, was never able to pull off, right? He, he conquers almost the rest of the, the known world you know, at the time, the Near East. But he's never able to conquer Egypt, right? But his son does. And when his son conquers Egypt, after that point, his son takes on the role of Pharaoh in the religious discipline of the Egyptians, right? So it wasn't just a, hey, you know, we rule you now and your stuff is ours. It was, we rule you now and as ruler, I'm going to fulfill my obligations to 
you know, whatever deities you have. Um, and, you know, why Cyrus did this, who knows. But the Bible says it's because God told him to, <laughs> you know, effectively. But what we have ultimately is Cyrus, he, he takes the position of what the, you know, the king of uh, Judea or um, Judah or Israel, depending on how you want to do it, was supposed to take towards the temple and that was he 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 allowed the temple to be populated he put people in charge of it and this would be nehemiah and eventually ezra he allowed the priests and the levites and everybody to go back to the temple he allowed jerusalem to be rebuilt he provided you know money and sheep and cattle and and he forced his uh satraps in the area to provide for them and he sent them home effectively and so that's what the books of nehemiah and ezra are about that's where they fit into the historic the the, the history of of uh you know judaism or of the hebrew people or the jewish people depending on how you want to term it and they're they're coming back from exile and so the the them all being taken away first you know the ten northern tribes by the assyrians and then the, the two southern tribes by the babylonians that's referred to collectively as the babylonian exile and they're all coming back is a huge 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 deal in jewish history it's not treated as big as the exodus and and um either from a theological standpoint or from a um, historical standpoint but it's it's even though it may not be treated like that, it is really big because it it sets up the entirety of the scene for the New Testament. Because right? this happens, you know, somewhere a thousand to five hundred years before, you know, Christ in the beginning of A.D. when we move out of B.C. So it's pretty important. <laughs> all of these events, all of these events are pretty important, and. Nehemiah and Ezra take us through the reestablishment of of Jerusalem. So it's interesting how it's it's sectioned. So Ezra is a priest, um, scribe. You know, at that time they they wouldn't have really had quote unquote priests simply because they didn't have a temple, right? When they were in Babylon, when they were in exile, there was no temple, there was no temple service, no worship. The priests weren't able to be priests, right? Because you could only do the temple services in the temple that was sort of the thing and um at least after the establishment of the temple you know before that god was was in a tent right it's basically a tent city um that very strict rules about how it was all set up but that wasn't in existence anymore and neither was the temple and so there was no temple service so you see ezra he's referred to as a priest and as a scribe but that was primarily his position was as a scribe and the babylonian exile is important because you have during this time frame the establishment of the synagogue kind of system of judaism so what we have now right is like right now in judaism the temple is still not in existence right what is in the temple spot is a mosque called the dome of the rock it's where you know, it's around this rock upon which uh, Muhammad is said to have ascended into heaven. I'm not going to really discuss that as far as 
you know, historical accuracy or whatnot. Not really important. What's important is there's something there and it's not the temple. So the temple service is still not going on. So kind of the, the pattern for how to practice, how to be a Jew and practice your um, Judaism as a religion in the kind of synagogue or, you know, some, some refer to it as temple these days, fashion gets its gets going in this time frame uh, in the Babylonian exile. And then they get to go back to Jerusalem and reestablish the temple. And so Nehemiah is a governor. And uh, interestingly enough, he, he goes back kind of first and kind of resettles. He rebuilds the wall. There's a lot of tension with the neighboring uh, company, you know, neighboring countries, satraps, um, who don't like the fact that Jerusalem could be reestablished as a as a power in the region? They don't they don't want you know it's typical power struggles. Nobody wants competition, right? And so they see Jerusalem being rebuilt and the walls being rebuilt, and they're like, hey, we don't like this. And so there's some back and forth. Nehemiah has to do um, take a lot of precautions in rebuilding the wall. There's some back and forth between them and the emperors of the time. Interestingly enough, the way the books are structured, you read Ezra first and then you read Nehemiah, which is weird, because um, Nehemiah technically chronologically happens first and then Ezra happens. But it's it's also strange because the way Ezra is sectioned, the first several chapters of Ezra are from a third person point of view, written from a third person kind of historic point of view, like this is what happened historically. And then the rest of Ezra is from Ezra's first-person point of view. He uses the word I a lot. You know, I came in and I, I Ezra, did this. Um, and Nehemiah is almost completely written in the first-person point of view where Nehemiah is talking about. So this is their, you know, first-person accounts of what happened with the establishment. And so I think the reason they put the books the way they did is the first three sections of Ezra kind of set up the whole thing. Right, they set up, you know, Cyrus deciding to send back, you know, send back the exiles, and um, and then you get into, okay, this is I'm Ezra, and this is the start of my story, because it Ezra sort of the the middle of the book of Ezra is kind of a restarting of a story from Ezra's point of view, and Ezra doesn't come to Jerusalem right away. Nehemiah does, so Nehemiah is sort of in the first wave of people and Ezra kind of brings a second wave of people and, and by the time Ezra gets there the priesthood has been reestablished and everything um, but Ezra kind of puts in a lot of the reforms and sort of sets up you know what what the government of uh, Judah and how the priesthood and Levites operate going forward because it's very important like you have a reestablishment of Jerusalem as a power and the temple as a place of worship. However, um, you know the Hebrews are not their own government anymore, right? They're under the control of a foreign power, and they're being allowed to do what they're what they're doing, but they're not, you know, quote unquote, masters of their own destiny. So, what does that look like? It, it has to be figured out because in the original setup of everything. It was, you know, Judah was its own country, right? They were their own people, their own country. And now you're existing in the age of, like, empires, where you're just a small portion of another, of an empire. And so how does government look like in that? 
how does um, how does temple worship, how does rebuilding of the temple work, how how you know the Levites, the the priest, how does making sure that all the temp worship stu- the temple worship stuff you know gets to it, all the the sacrifices they need to make, the support of the priest, support of the Levites, all the government, you know, because there's basically a tax levied on the people. Uh, in and around Jerusalem and in Judea as a whole to provide for the Levites, to provide for the priesthood. How does that government work? And that is, that is sort of like the importance of Nehemiah and Ezra from the historical point of view is they, they effectively set up the, they set the groundwork and start building for what becomes known in general as Second Temple Judaism. And this is the Judaism that we encounter when we read the Gospels, the Gospels of Jesus Christ. It sets up for us what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, <coughs> Nehemiah mean from, you know, a historical, uh, historical-religious, religious kind of context. You know, the the repeopling of Judea and the rebuilding of Jerusalem with the Hebrews, the Reestablishment of the temple, although from Ezekiel onward, we don't have any recording of the presence of the Lord coming into the temple. Uh, and that is, there's a lot of very significant events that occur in the Gospels that sort of play tribute to that. And, um, you know, especially Jesus entering the temple, being brought to the temple, that kind of stuff. So, but we do have the reestablishment of the worship of God in the temple by the Israelites per the law of Moses because at the time that's still the only covenant they had right even though per Ezekiel the covenant was was broken and you know this this really one of the reasons it points to the necessity of there being a messiah instead of being um, you know a number of different messiahs comes back to this point here where the, there is an expectation in the post-Babylonian exile that there would be a new covenant, a re-establishment of a covenant witnessed by God. You know, what we have in Ezra and Nehemiah is a recommitment by the people. And we see this patterned time and again uh, with the, especially in the book of the book of Joshua, so we have in the book in Deuteronomy before the death of Moses. You have Moses tell the people, okay, this is how you should do things. You know, live by the covenant of God, love God. Um, you know, worship only Him, don't worship others. And Moses gives an impassioned speech to all of the Hebrews on the, uh, you know, kind of on the banks of the of the Jordan before they're about to go into the Holy Land, and basically tells them. You know, look, this is it. You know, renew your covenant. Everybody, everybody says yes, right? And then, you know, Moses gets to see the Holy Land, and then he dies. Sort of, you know, recommitment theme from in uh, Joshua at the at the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua. Joshua, the son of Nun, basically does the same thing. You know, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. That's where that comes from, is his impassioned speech to the people of Israel telling them, you know, God's brought you into his land. He's fulfilled the covenant of Abraham. You know, live under the Mosaic law. Uh, you know, live by the covenant. And as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. 
and we see this also in you know both the the combined dynasty you have Saul David and and Solomon and then in the split kingdom anytime you have a king especially in the later kingdom of Judea anytime you have a king who calls for reform and brings the people back to the worship of, of God in right manner they rededicate the temple they reestablish the feasts you know the Passover and booths and whatnot you have this rededication of the people you know the sacrifice of of the animals and then a, a reading from the book and then an impassioned speech by the leader and then um, you know they all come back like Hezekiah under Hezekiah's rulership that's what we see happen and you know towards the end of Manasseh if, if the Chronicles and the, the prayer of Manasseh are to believe he, he returns to the Lord even though he acted against the Lord through most of his life so there is a common theme of this and the same thing happens with Nehemiah and Ezra after the, the walls are built and the temple is reestablished Ezra has everybody come up to Jerusalem and stand and he reads you know the book of Moses effectively which is the first you know he basically reads the book of the law the Pentateuch and all the people weep and then they declare it's the it's the festival of the booths so then they do the festival and they dedicate they rededicate the people but there's no witness from God in, in these these things, right? You don't have God come down in the cloud. You don't have, you know, fire. You know, like with the, the sort of miraculous displays you get with a lot of Old Testament stories. You don't get that, and the ultimate result is that the people. You know, dwell within the covenant, but the but the presence of the Lord hasn't come back to the temple, the presence of God, and so there is an expectation that that, that event will happen in post uh, Babylonian exile uh, temple worship in, in Second Temple Judaism, that there will be a figure, a prophet like Moses, you know, who comes and and walks in the presence of the Lord and sits in the presence of the Lord and you know, talks to God as if face to face as it says and um, what you see within the prophets the books of the prophets is there are messiahs called out and, and you start to get the um, feeling I guess it's a feeling if you want to call it that but it, it starts to start to point as the prophets get later and later and later that they're that the messiahs they're talking about aren't aren't separate messiahs like you know because the messiah is just an anointed one so it's anointed one of god so you know david was a messiah solomon was a messiah you know the judges were messiah saul was a messiah people who turned out bad in the end were, were messiahs um but there was this pointing and this hope that there would be this singular messiah who was similar to moses that was going to reestablish. Judaism uh, and establish God's presence with the Jews in the second temple and and then from there was going to do effectively what had been done in, in you know per the stories per Jewish history that God would then be with them and they would be able to you know regain their kingdom and, and this all got wrapped up in the concept of um, you know Judea being its own kingdom again, being its own sovereign power, not 
being a vassal state to someone else because it starts in this in this these books it starts as a vassal state to Persia and uh, Persia eventually gets overthrown by Alexander the Great so Macedonia and so it becomes a vassal state to Macedonia and then with the breakup of Alexander's empire into the four separate kingdoms under its generals it becomes a vassal state to uh, one you know kingdom and because it's sort of on the border it, it switches sides several times and you know we pick up this historically story-wise in the book of the Maccabees the Maccabees 1 and 2 as to what's going on in Judea under those but there is this distinct want within the Jewish people to be their own state again right and then after the the time of the the Maccabees and their revolts uh, against the Ptolemies and, and you know, Alexander's generals' kingdoms, you have the Romans come in. And so there's just this this progressive um, always being a vassal state to somebody else and, and not wanting to do that, wanting to be masters of their own destiny. And so the concept of the Messiah gets, starts to get wrapped up within that, you know, that want. Um, and, you know, ultimately that all of this serves as a, a fairly good spiritual lesson. So this is the other side of the ball, right? So what does this mean for us today as Christians, right? Beyond just the historical uh, understanding of the Jewish people, of the times and tribulations, the, what the Babylonian exile meant, what the reestablishment of the temple meant, Second Temple Judaism, eventually what the destruction of that temple means, you know, the return to the exiled state and then the reestablishment of Israel after World War II and what that means to Jewish to the Jewish people, you know, all, all of that historically and geopolitically can give you more background on that. But what does it mean for the, the modern, you know, the Christian today trying to live his life? And much like many of the stories of the Old Testament, what you have to do is put yourself in as you know one of the one or more of the people or peoples in the in the book now Nehemiah and Ezra are you know what do you call it first person histories right they're histories written they're almost autobiographies and so you could put yourself in as as Nehemiah or Ezra but the reality is what you should be doing is putting yourself in as the people of God, as the, you know, the Judeans, the people returning from exile. <clears throat> and so the, the real, I think, thrust of Nehemiah and Ezra is in the concept of the return to order. And this is especially, you know, true of Christians because Christians... We exist in a world we don't belong in, right? We, we don't belong to the world, right? In the world, but not of the world is sort of the, the, the slogan. But you're born, you know, that's the, the, one of the ideas behind original sin. You're born in the wrong camp, right? You're born in the enemy's camp. And the baptism you get makes you a double agent, right? It brings you into God's army, if you want to think about it in that terms, what your baptism does. But then sin... By sinning, you you become a double agent. So you exist in this state of always uh, in something of a moral quandary. Do I go with what the world 
wants me to do tells me is right and good and just? Or do I go with what uh, God, Jesus Christ, tells me to do and is good and right and just? And that's the state of, of just living, right, day to day. And a lot of times it's not, it's often not real big things. But the reality is everybody sins, right? Everybody falls short of what they're supposed to do and what God's plan is for them and the choices that they're supposed to make. Everybody does. We're all sinners. Uh, there's only two people, maybe three, <laughs> who've never, you know, you got Jesus, you got Mary, and you got John the Baptist. And uh, John's not dogmatic. John the Baptist isn't dogmatically. It's just a, a very pious tradition. Um, you know, he was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. So he's he's got a chance, <laughs> right? <laughs> he's got a chance. Um, but so we always exist in this state of necessary repentance after we sin, right? So, that, you know, that's the, the, the big message of the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's it. That's the good news. Repent and believe in the gospel. So you see Jesus saying, the, so the repentant part, right, I repent of my sins. I don't, I don't want to do them anymore, right? I don't want to sin anymore. And so, I mean, that's effectively what repent. And when I go to confession, I have to confess my sins, right? You know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been a month or however long since I've been in confession. Here's what I've done wrong. Uh, I'm sorry for these and all my sins. And and then basically I I promise I'm not gonna I'm gonna try not to do it again, right? Because it, if you if you if you don't have a desire not to do it again, you didn't repent. <laughs> like and it doesn't count. The priest is actually obligated to withhold absolution from you unless you actually want to repent. Unless you, because that's part of repentance. I, I didn't, you know, I wish I hadn't done what I did, and I'm not going to do it again. It's not even enough just to wish you hadn't done what you did. You also have to not want to do it again. Um, and so, if you're in that state, then the question rapidly becomes, how do I keep myself from doing it again? Because humans are creatures of habit, right? We, we like to sin the same sins over and over and over again. We like to become addicted to things. We like to do things. We like our rituals. We like to do things how we want to think. We get all out of sorts if we don't eat at the right time or sleep at the right time or sleep enough at the right time or eat enough at the right time. If this thing that we were expecting to happen doesn't happen, if that thing that we wanted to happen doesn't happen, you know, we're extraordinarily habitual creatures. Like, like very, very, very habitual creatures. And sin is often a habit, right? The sins we, we sin again and again and again are habits we form over time. They're bad habits that we have to break. And so the question is, how do you break those bad habits? And that is the story. That's effectively what we're... What, Nehemiah and Ezra are trying to do. They're trying to reestablish the kingdom of God. Right? And that's what you're trying to do in your life, is reestablish the kingdom of God. So step one, rebuild the wall. <laughs> right? You gotta that that in the ancient world, the wall in a city represented the city's ability not to be pillaged by any random invader or any random host of people. Right? That was a problem. You would get these these traveling bands of 
you know, and they talk about it in the Bible, the Moabites and the Ishmaelites or whatever, who just sort of travel in and they, they rape and pillage as they go. They take what they want. Well, if you've got a city with a wall, they can't do that, right? Because you have some amount of protection. You've got enough of a, of a, a warning for the people who live in the city, for them to get an armed resistance going. It's just too much trouble for the invader to worry about your city if you've got a wall. So you've got to build your wall. And walls take, in human life, they take the part of boundaries, right? If there are certain people that cause you to sin, you have to create boundaries around them. And maybe that's a boundary that you uphold. Maybe that's a boundary you ask them to uphold. Maybe it's both. But you have to start setting boundaries. And you have to start setting boundaries around things that make you sin, like, you know, food or... Um, your eyes like to wander, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, what, whatever it is that your poison, that you're poisoning yourself is, because that's what sin is, it's poison for your spirit, you have to try and put boundaries around it, make, make those things at least hard enough for you to get to that you really have to put effort into it, because that's ultimately what a wall, that's all defenses, right, you can always overcome a defense, there's always a better weapon. But what the defense, what the wall does is it delays, right? It's the best, best thing you've got for delaying. And oftentimes that's all a human needs is a little bit of time to get away from whatever, whatever near occasion of sin, because we have a term for that in Catholicism, near occasion of sin. So that's all you, that's what you need. Rebuild the wall, right? What's the next thing you do? Reestablish worship, <laughs> right? Right? You read, you read the law and you reestablish your worship. And that includes festivals, right? You know, a lot of people like to think religion is this dreary, sad sort of thing that, you, you know, people do, um, you know, on Sundays. And then the real fun of the weekend happens all around that. And going to church is just this drab sort of thing we all have to do. And, oh, my God, I don't want to do this. Now, I don't know. Church should be fun or at least uplifting or joyful. Now... I mean, granted, the actual experience of going to Mass may not always fit that bill, but the concept is your worship doesn't have to be drear and, and dreadful all the time. There should be celebrations. You know, that's that's why I'm not a, the biggest fan of the Protestant work ethic, because what the Protestant work ethic says is I have to be working all the time, I have to be making progress all the time, I can't rest, because resting is, you know, the hands of the... the Idle hands, the work of the devil, and blah, 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 blah. Now, and the Bible very clearly points out the fact that we need rest. And psychology is caught up to the Bible and says, oh, yeah, no, we totally need rest. <laughs> you know, it's just a human need. It's a necessity of being human is getting the rest we need. And so that is key to this whole reestablishing worship. But, you know, what does that look like? Start reading the Word of God. Right? If you're not regularly reading the Word of God, or listening to it, or meditating to it, or, or something, you're not interacting with the Word of God, listening to you know sermons or, or homilies. I, I love Bishop Barron's homilies. I listen to them you know, typically Monday or Tuesday after Sunday. Of course, I listen to my priest's homilies. My priest is pretty good right now. He's his, 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 his a, an his intellectual. He's, he helped write the, or translate the, uh, the current... Bible that we use in Mass, the NABRA, at least in the English in the United States, the NABRE. He was on the, the 
So he's, he's very sharp. He's a sharp guy, and he's pretty pithy and quick, too, so that's nice. <laughs> but I like listening to other sermons and other priests talking. So you have to engage engage in the Word of God. Engage in the Scriptures. You know, Read it physically or digitally. Listen to it. Get an audio drama. Um, you know, get a, get a Bible on tape. You know, hook up with the, the Hallow app. Somehow engage with the Word of God. Second, you know, repent <laughs> and, and and reestablish worship. And for you know, for Catholics, that means going to mass. You know, go to mass. Maybe not just on uh, Sundays, but whenever you can. Receive the Eucharist. Put yourself into a state that you can receive the Eucharist, which is the state of repentance. And then start fixing those things in your life. So we have in, in Ezra and Nehemiah um, a, a, an attempt by them to disconnect the people from you know, foreign things. In this case, the big one, the big headline is, is foreign women. Um, a lot of intermarriage had occurred within the Israelite community at large when they were you know, scattered. So, you know... Judeans and Israelites were intermarrying with non-Hebrew women, and or, and giving their wives in marriage or, or their daughters in marriage and that kind of stuff. And so what you had was a lot of mixed, mixed marriages and families. And there's a call to come back to, you know, kind of pure Judaism. And this could seem pretty extreme uh, from our point of view, where like intermarriage and mixed marriage is just sort of something that happens. It's not a big deal. Um, but in the old world, it kind of was a big deal. When you, when you, when a when a woman married into a culture that wasn't her own, she was effectively supposed to be inducted into that culture, become one with that culture. And so it was a big deal for, you know, an Israelite to give their daughter in marriage, because what they were saying is, in a way, I'm now cutting you off from the people of God. Um, you know, that doesn't seem so good, right? <laughs> and and then on the other side of it, you know, you could have women marry in to uh, Judaism, but if they didn't become Jewish in, you know, the ritual way, the ritual fashion, then they weren't part of, of God's people. And so there is a, a large call within the time of Ezra and Nehemiah for the for the returning exiles to sort of rid themselves of the foreign women and stop marrying them. Um, you know, how that played out in those ancient times is not the important theological point for us. The important point for us is what does that mean? What what's the, the, the lesson here is if you if you're dabbling in other stuff. Right, if you're dabbling in, you know, witchcraft, or spiritualism, or you know, Buddhism, or Hinduist traditions, or New Age stuff, or this or that, or yeah, you're kind of you hold most of the teachings in the church, but not all of them. I mean, come on, this is modern. This is the modern times, you know. And, and that's, that statement's always going to be true. It's always the modern times, and the church is always, quote-unquote, behind the times. Because no matter, even if the church tried to catch up, quote-unquote, to modern times, it would fail. Because modern times is always changing. You know, what was new and popular ten years ago is going to be stupid and old now. 
and and might be popular again in 10 years. So it's not the church's job to stay uh, stay with it, quote unquote, with the world. It's the church's job to preach the good news, no matter how old that gets. That's the job, and the job is to stand by what's true and beautiful and good. And so that's what you got to do. That's what the the point is. Is you have to reestablish right worship, and part of that right worship is re is evaluating what foreign what what things of the world that have you taken into yourself and and uh, you know aligned yourself with that are contrary to God that are contrary to right worship and then you got to expel those things as hard as that may be to expel them because i mean ultimately you know, in the in the stories in Nehemiah and Ezra, we're talking about you know wives here. We're talking about relationships between husbands and wives. That's not an easy thing to expel from your life or, or to get rid of. Uh, you know, we're gonna go into the historicity of how that would have worked and everything, but it it means even if you've tied yourself so thoroughly to something that is not of God or is not a part of God's church, you've got to divorce yourself from it. You have to break that bond. And you have to, to move on. Um, and that, that's probably the hardest lesson that comes out of Nehemiah and Ezra, is the need to divorce yourself from the things that are not of God. And, you know, like we've said about all of the Old Testament stories that we look at, the main important part for us as Christians, at least in the opinion of the vast majority of the church fathers and theologians down through the ages, and of most theologians today, is not the historical, critical historical insights we can glean. It's what is the theological and... Um, call it moral message or life message you want to put it in that terms for us today like what what do we do what is the story what's the allegory what's the metaphor the simile you know what is it how is it applied to us you know and just like in judges or not judges um but in joshua where the main thrust of joshua was the expelling of the canaanites what you're supposed to take from that is the expulsion of, you know, sin from your life. I mean, it's not a, it's not a small matter that at one point in the in one of the chapters of Joshua, there there's seven kings that are listed that get expelled, you know, and those correlate fairly well to the seven capital sins, you know, the seven derivative sins upon, you know, from which all other sin sort of falls out. You know that is that is the primary message of Nehemiah and Ezra, and you, and you might say, well, that's sort of a repeated message. And then, yeah, of course it is, because <laughs> the fact of the matter is, you know, and I said before, humans are creatures of habit, and we fall into habitualized sin time and time again. Like we're we're we have a cyclical nature to us. We live on a cyclical planet. We have 
you know, a cyclical way of doing things. Farming is a cyclical thing. Even hunting and gathering is cyclical because of the way plants grow and animals um, will also grow, if you want to use the word grow there. You know, come of age, however you want to put it. So our, our, our existence is cyclical in nature, which means it's not super crazy that you're going to find this theme repeated maybe with different nuances over and over again in the Bible from book to book because we need to hear it on a regular and reoccurring basis. And I mean, ultimately, that's why the readings are set up the way they are for Mass. It's, it's a, you know, the daily readings, daily Mass readings are set up on a two-year cycle, you know, year one, year two, and the Sunday readings are set up on a three-year cycle, ABC. Uh, and then even within that cycle, in the particular seasons, <clears throat> such as um, Easter, Lent, Advent, you have kind of a callback to John, because the way the, the gospel readings are set up, um, A, B, and C, it's um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But then in the in the particular seasons, you get John, you get, and that's kind of a, a repeat every year. So you get to hear John stuff you know, almost the same every year, whereas the other stuff you'll get different versions of the story. Um, you know, in, in Matthew's gospel, you get the, the Sermon on the Mount. Well, in Luke's gospel, <clears throat> there isn't a singular Sermon on the Mount. There's the Sermon on the Plain, uh, but it's a lot of different, you know, the, the stuff that gets coalesced into the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, is, is sort of interspersed throughout the gospel of Luke. So I know that was a digression, but that that's, that's I'm just saying... You're going to encounter this theme a lot, and that's that's one of the primary themes for us. So, um, you know, the big the big theme, return, right? So, the return from exile, right? If you have fallen into sin, you've fallen away from the faith uh, at some level. Like this could be full blown. I haven't gone to church in years. It, you know, I haven't been to confession in 30 years. Um, I'm just returning now to, you know, less full-blown, like smaller sort of, well, you know, I'm going to church, but I've been, you know, playing with this sin or I've been allowing this sin to become important in my life. Um, Falling away, it's coming back. It's reestablishing the walls, the boundaries between you and and the sin, you know, the near occasion of sin um, and sinful things. And the the writing of the self by the expulsion of things that are not of God, like all of that is primarily the you know Christian moral theological um, or really moral lesson we get from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So I just want to wrap, do a do a review wrap up because I don't do that very often. I think it's probably somewhat important to do that. I think about what we talked about in the beginning with Ezra and Nehemiah being the return of the exiles from Babylon. It's it's a pretty huge event in the history of Israel. It's uh, substantial. The, the basically the refounding of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and then the refounding of the temple and the second temple. Uh, you have you know the background on that the 
uh, falling away of, of Israel and they're being taken by the Assyrians and then the eventual falling away of Judah, uh, Judah and Benjamin, the, Judea, the southern kingdom, and their eventual conquering by Babylon. The removal of all the you know, utensils and the gold dishes and plates and, and serving things and the lampstands and all that from um, from is from Jerusalem from the temple to Babylon. And we see we see what happens with some of those in the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel. Uh, but you know, we get the what happened with all that first person perspective from Jeremiah, who lives through the siege and then the eventual exile, and we get what's going on from a from a theological perspective from Ezekiel, kind of the the abandoning of the temple, God pre, God's presence leaving the temple, and going elsewhere, and um, you know effectively leaving the the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, to fend for themselves, and of course that means they fall to earthly power, so. That's that's sort of the histor the historical portion of Nehemiah and Ezra. Uh, if you want to look at it from a historical critical method, it's actually fairly well supported. These events uh, with outside stuff. Cyrus, I mean, that is kind of how Cyrus ran his empire. He let people go back. He he had a different approach. The Persian Empire had a different approach to conquered peoples than the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Edomites, and you know whoever came before. It was. It was more, I don't know what you call it, hands-off slash conscriptive. They were more, you know, we'll use what you're good at for our armies or for whatever we have. And, you know, keep paying your taxes and we'll, we'll stay out of your hair. You know, we'll, and we'll, we'll do our due diligence with your gods. And, um, you know, because we want to be in with everybody. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of how it works. So, um you know, there's also a lot of stuff that happens in the Persian Empire out on the out on the east eastern fringes of the empire, eastern northern fringes of the empire that we get very little, almost no detail about, simply because it's a lot of our records concerning the Persians come from either the the Hebrew scriptures in the Bible and from the Greeks, and that's all Western uh, Empire stuff. I mean, the Greeks are really on the far western uh, sort of um, provinces way, way far out there. Like the whole, the Greeks beating Xerxes uh, in the in the battle. That you know, 300 stuff. All of that is sort of like something that happened out on the fringe of the empire and was unfortunate, but it really didn't affect the empire in in a huge kind of way. So, um, so there's that piece of it and we look at it from the the you know what does this story mean to me as a christian today in the modern world and it's very much about coming back from exile which is always a a motif about coming back from sin and coming back into sort of the righteous place the justified place the the, the place with god where you are entering back into holiness you're setting yourself part apart from the world and you're, you're sort of and that brings in the wall motif you know, the rebuilding of the wall, <clears throat> setting up the wall, you know, extricating yourself from those near occasions of sin, from those things that in your life that are not doing you any good, that are harming you, and then the divorce from the foreign, um, which is the, you know,
know, for us, that is getting rid of those things which are not of God. You know, the in in the sense that the Christian is a sojourner in a foreign country, aka the world. Right? We're not we're in the world, but not of the world, is how we're supposed to be. You know, our baptism effectively brings us into the camp of God instead of the world. Then what the world has to offer is foreign. It's it's in this instance, and so it's the purging the self of the world. It's moving into a place where you're in the world, but not of the world. Um, and there is little to no importance put on the things of the world. And that is sort of the movement that this these two books are are showcasing for you know the modern Christian. Um, and you know, I. Part of me was like, say, oh, this is very important for our times right now, but it's it's always been important. I, I think a lot of people, <clears throat> myself included, when we looked at history, you know, sort of the pre-rationalism um, uh, phase of development of the Western Western society, so you know, pre-1800s, and even like nowadays, when we think about, you know. Um, countries that were purely Catholic or, or that were, you know, almost to a person, they were all just considered Catholic, you know, pre-schism uh, <clears throat> slash pre-Protestantism, that kind of stuff. When you think about that, you kind of like think, oh, all the people who live there must have been pious at some level. But the reality is, just like today, you have people of varying degrees of uh, piety, of uh, reverence, of you know, of actually following the rules, right? And the, the honest, God's honest truth is everybody's a sinner, so never, not everybody runs the whole gamut all the time, anyways. And um, so that's it's it's something that's always been true. The world has always had allure, and um, it's our job to to you know see see the good that is in the world. Because God made it good, right? But to also recognize that it's not the highest good. The world is not the highest good. And therefore, it shouldn't be the thing we expend all of our energy towards. That should be ultimately God. And the things of the world should be used in those endeavors. So that's, that's the main thrust of Ezra and uh, Nehemiah. So they're, they're pretty short books. If you want to read them, they're only... I mean, they're like ten chapters apiece. And like I said, um, you know, Ezra starts his first three chapters or so is, you know, history. And then the rest of it is sort of Ezra's first-person account. And Nehemiah is almost all just Nehemiah's first-person account. So it's not um, it's not hard reading. <laughs> it's not deep. It's not like, uh, you know, the letters of John or, or, or of Paul... Um, or the Book of Wisdom, or Proverbs. It's not like super deep stuff, or the Psalms. It's it's sort of like this is what happened, um, kind of a deal. So, but that is the Old Testament story, stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. And thank you for listening. And uh, get you next time on Long Drive Home in the Dark. So let's end with a prayer, if we can. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, please watch over all the people who listen to this podcast and myself. Give me and them a safe drive. 
and everybody in the world a safe drive and to treat each other with love and respect on the roadways. We love and appreciate all that you give us, Lord, and we ask for all that is good. In your name, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Have a great rest of your day, everybody.